Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. About Bitcoin, but I wonder how many four-letter words are in it. He's not a fan. Froth in local markets doesn't seem like it would be an adequate description. So chatbots, yes, this is really interesting because it's one of those fields about AI that tells us more about ourselves than it does about AI. I think the progress in chatbots and things like GPT-2, GPT-3 has resulted in things that can produce text that... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Peter Scott. Peter, thanks for doing this. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. So I'm excited to learn about all things AI. I'm interested, though, how you introduce yourself when you meet people at like a business event. Well, I don't. There aren't any business events to meet people, unless you're counting Zoom. And and, and so I, I tell them that I help people feel more congruent, more competent, more confident about artificial intelligence and what it's going to do to their lives. Cool. Well, can you talk about talk about your podcast and all the different all the different ways you're getting the words out these days? Sure. I started a podcast one year ago called Artificial Intelligence and You, which is going to be the title of my next book. And it's we we ask three questions: What is artificial intelligence? Why will it affect you? And how do you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? And that's what we dig into on every episode. And we are never going to run out of material. AI just touches everything. When Andrew Ng said that AI is the new electricity, that's a really good way to think about it. Because if you think about how much electricity changed things and got into everything, you know, how many electric things are you wearing? You, you can not move around the house without touching things that use electricity. Well, that's what AI is doing. It's doing for thinking what electricity did for machines. Yeah. 
So I know that you've you've got some things that we should be thinking about for for safety, just like controlling electricity needs to be done for for safety reasons. But I also want to talk about just advantages for business people who maybe feel intimidated about AI. Just some some ideas for dipping our toe in the water or, or starting to think through how we might be able to adapt our industry instead of getting left behind. Absolutely. Broad industry, broad question, broad answer. And the intimidation factor is real and understandable because AI is on a huge hype cycle at the moment and people are rushing to attach the AI label to things. We call that AI washing, right? And you know, you if there isn't an A if there isn't a toaster that's AI enabled or claimed to be at the moment, I'm sure it's only a matter of time. And a lot of those labels aren't deserved and not really artificial intelligence, just got a, a chip in it somewhere. So understanding what AI is, because it's such a broad term, and and what it can do for a business is, is crucial. And any business that has a possibility of leveraging artificial, leveraging artificial intelligence, I'd say one of the major factors would be, what is your data? What data do you have? Because that's where it will gain the most advantage, particularly if you're a, a, a small business, you're not going to be able to create much in the way of your own algorithms or software. You're going to be using machine learning that other people have created. But what you have that no one else has is your data. And AI feeds on data. It's like a cookie monster, right? The more, the better. And, and that's where you can train it, things like your customer database to find out things about your customers you didn't know they didn't know either. You know, a few weeks back, we had a gentleman on who sold his AI business and started a venture fund just investing in, in AI firms. And I think one of the things that appealed to me, I wonder if you would describe it differently, but he said, you know, one way to think about an introduction to AI is, is just predicting, you know, have a computer to help predict what your customers be interested in, what the best next step is, things like that. Do you, do you disagree with that? Do you see it differently or how would you, what would you say about that? No, that's one of the main uses of AI is to predict things. You first train it on what you've already seen and then it learns the patterns. So it's, it's like the way that we listen to music and we go, yeah, I know that that's Miles Davis. And you hear another Miles Davis or Beethoven or Paul McCartney. And you go, I, I've heard that before. I, I know who it is. I may not have heard that one before, but I know that pattern. And AI can do that. It's, it's actually one of the, the really miraculous and, and fascinating things about AI there just to give a, a quick digression, because I, th I think this is so important that it, it can do that when, and that's what Daniel Kahneman would have called system one thinking, the in intuitive pattern recognition kind of activity. And the old school of thought would be that if you can't program a computer to do it, it can't do it. A computer can only do what it's programmed to do. So by that maxim, it should be impossible for computers to recognize faces because none of us can explain how we do that, right? Anyone who thinks they can hasn't thought about it long enough. So, and yet we can recognize faces. So that would seem to be impossible for computers and yet they can do it. And the key to doing that is training them. And then they recognize the patterns in the data. And in some respects, they're doing it the same way that we do neurologically. In other respects, they're doing it in ways that are utterly foreign to us. And understanding 
the difference between where AI is figuring things out in the way that you or I would and where it's figuring it out in these completely unintelligible ways that are hard for us to discover and even harder for us to make sense of is one of the key things that anyone looking to leverage AI should try and wrap their head around. So let, let's give you a more specific example. I, I would love using myself. It's like getting free consulting on the show, right? So we're, we're in the middle of building a media company, kind of like what Bloomberg is to New York stock traders. We're trying to be that for wealthy entrepreneurs, right? And then have such entertaining stuff, build an audience that we can advertise our, our real estate fund, our cash flow real estate fund to them, right? And so to me, a couple of thoughts that I had, I'd be interested in what you think is like, one, you know, the prediction engine for media, like, hey, if people like this show, maybe we should, maybe we should recommend, you know, maybe we should have an engine that recommends the other AI shows we've recorded, right? Or we're really big nerds for Warren Buffett and how people like Brookfield Asset Management have applied his principles to real asset investing, like real estate, right? So similar on, on like the way Masterclass or somebody uses that, if you're like, oh, if you enjoyed this instructional class, maybe you like this kind of thing. But that's probably just scratching the surface. Any, any other ideas for me? So just let's start out with a, a question. What do you have the most data on? I mean, it will probably be, I mean, con consumption of our content in our media business. And, and, and also content itself. So you've got a lot of data about, the, about people and what they consume in, in your content, correct? Mm -hmm. So with, with metadata data about those people that enables you to make predictions like people in in this area of the country like these kind of shows or people between 25 and 37 like these kind of shows the you wouldn't actually go looking for those specific relationships and seeing whether they hold or not you would do what's called unsupervised learning and cluster analysis you would feed in all of that data and say find the relationships and that's where it comes up with things that you didn't think about my, the, the example I, I love about this uh, example of uh, unsupervised learning was when some researchers took pictures of people's retinas, you know, the thing at the back of your eyeball and ran it through unsupervised learning along with metadata about the people whose eyeballs they were looking at, age, sex, illnesses, diseases, conditions, demographics, so forth, looking for correlations and some of the ones they expected to see age some of the ones like disease certain diseases it could pick up on those and then it picked up on gender and it said well I, it can recognize someone's gender from their retinal pattern to 97 percent accuracy now no one huh. no human had ever thought of that before and even when they were told that's in the data and they went back and looked they couldn't do any better than chance so that's new knowledge right no one thought that retinas had a gender dependency and now we find that they do somewhere now of course there are easier ways to tell someone's gender than looking back at their eyeball that's not the point the the, the point is we find out new relationships so you you feed in this metadata to unsupervised learning and say tell me things about this that i didn't know before and to the same extent you also do experiments with the results and and say Okay, well, if that's true, I'm going to do some A-B experiments here. I've got enough people. I can segment them into an A group and a B group. I will see how this change in my outreach affects them. 
So I want to break that down a little bit more. So for somebody like me, where I'm saying, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Where do I get the program to, to, to run my unsupervised learning? How do, I, how do I get the computer program I'm feeding it into? That's a great question. And I, I read something recently that people always say, that's a great question when they don't have an answer for it. And in, and in this case, that is the, the case because I don't get into the specifics of those except in, in certain vertical markets, and this isn't one of them. Uh, if we were talking about education or telecom, it would be a different matter. But uh, for media recommendations, I don't have any specific products. I can tell you what to look for in those products. I can tell you how to tell whether they're doing what you want. I can tell you what sort of shape your data should be in and what issues you might run into of conscious or unconscious bias in that data. Yeah. Can you give me a couple of examples of those? Bias is an, an interesting thing in data, and not that this would necessarily show up in your corpus, but there is this interesting distinction at the moment between the data that we have and the data that we would like to have. So, and I'll explain how that shows up in, in this field. For instance, if you're doing image tagging of people in certain professions and, and you feed in a large amount of data in that respect and then get the AI to tell you from what it's learned, show you a picture of a typical nurse, it'll be female, and a picture of a typical doctor, it'll be male because that's the data that we have. It's not the data we aspire to. We want it to not be prescriptive in that sense. We want to have more female doctors, more male nurses. We don't want AIs categorizing people in that respect when we're trying to change the history, but the history is what is where our data comes from. And that history in that data then produces bias. So you could have, in that case, you could have the cleanest data uh, in the world, and it would still be giving you answers that you don't want. And, and so finding bias in data is, is a huge profession right now. It's a, a hugely difficult and challenging one because you can see that even when the data is perfectly clean, it can harbor uh, results that you don't want. And uh, of course, it can have results in it that you, or it can have incorrect data that you don't want. The famous example of this is Google Photos. I probably don't like people bringing this up all the time, but back in 2015, someone tweeted a picture of, of Google Photos doing its tagging and had labeled her friend as gorillas uh, and, and they were black. And of course, that was horrifying. No one at Google intended that result. And the response to that was to remove Gorilla as a possible output of the tagging algorithm. And to my knowledge, they haven't put it back. But the that was a result of the algorithms having too few pictures of black people relative to too many pictures of gorillas. And could you, what would you have to do to be aware of that kind of discrepancy, that kind of tilt? in your input data going in. Now, in, in your case, this could be the question of, well, what is it that you don't know that, what is it that's not in the data? Because that well, represents audiences you haven't found yet. Yeah, and I guess my next question too is, what about like getting, I don't know, analytics from our YouTube channel or our podcast host or stuff like that, and then bringing that in as well? Is it just a matter of making it standardized so that the machine knows how to analyze it? Are you 
talking about integrating the analytics or feeding those analytics into yeah, AI? As, yeah. So in addition to any information that we gather on our website or something about what people are consuming, mixing in, hey, here's what our podcast statistics are. Here's what our YouTube statistics are. And trying to figure out how to have that all work together to, to come up with better answers or better insights. Right. More data equals more results. The uh, main caveat, though, is that you have to mix apples and apples. So your website data is about individual statistics and your YouTube analytics are results of applying some algorithms. I don't know if you can get at the individual data or if they just show you these aggregate statistics. And they're useful, but you have to know how to to correlate those. You have to know how to to merge those two different kinds of data and say oh, this is this one here is an aggregate. This one here is a set of individual. But here's the relationship between them that we want you to measure. Yeah. Well, do you have any stories of people who started having much more business success once they started leveraging AI? There are uh, some I'm aware of in the educational sector. I would have to uh, dig up their names, but I can tell you what sort of things that they're, they're, they're doing. And there are several ways in which AI is being used in higher education right now to produce some, some great accelerations. And, and you can get an idea of how this could translate into other sectors. So enrollment and retention is a big one. And personal contact with those students is a, a factor in doing that. Now, you could hire more people and train them up, but they found that chatbots with the right training can engage students both at the time when they're making the decision and also during the, it's called the summer melt period where the people may melt away during the summer and not come back in the fall. And the chatbots can talk to them and engage them in conversation about what are you thinking of switching majors? What can I uh, do to help you find this kind of information? What are you looking for? It's also where they are used in, say, student services and and helping. So you don't have to reach someone during business hours on the phone and in the office. So that's one thing that's making measurable differences, a significant one. And You've also got bots being used as virtual teaching assistants. So they interact with students during class and after class about what's being taught and, and, and engage them there. You've even got the possibility of, and this sounds creepy, AIs doing uh, feature analysis, expression analysis of students in a classroom so that it will tell the instructor these ones are engaged, these ones don't know what the heck is going on. It's it's creepy when we think about where that is being done the most right now, which is China, and they're doing that in, in, in classrooms and to tell the teachers who's paying the most attention. And of course, our mind goes to things, horror scenarios like, oh, well, you off to re-education camp. But it's being marketed in, in the West as, as well. And the spin is not, who do you want to send to re-education camp? It's how can we give you an unbiased machine level objective view of the engagement of the students in your class so that you can focus on the delivering the material and not scanning around 200 faces at a time. And, and there are other aspects. So there are some of the, the success stories in, in, in that sector. You know, that, that one's actually super interesting to me because I have this real soapbox issue and my, my partner share it of, I, I have a real dislike for speculation that gets disguised as investing. You know, Warren Buffett's mentor, Ben Graham, he's taught at University, Columbia University. 
that for something to be an investment, it needs to have safety of principle and an adequate return. So if you're missing one of those two things, then it's speculative in nature. And so I'm not opposed to people speculating. You know, if you're going to Vegas and you're gambling, people know they're gambling, right? Like, I think there's some gambling addiction, some things that are not healthy, not helpful to society. But at least nobody's being told one thing and they get the bait and switch and found out, oh, they were playing roulette and they didn't know it, right? Where something like Bitcoin, where it it doesn't produce income. So there's no, intrin- you can't value the intrinsic value as a function of its income. There is no income. So it's speculative in nature, right? Well, when it gets sold to people with very little or no investment experience as, you know, this this great thing that only goes up, you know, and and unfortunately ends in in tears when somebody buys it at 50,000 the next day it's 40,000 or an hour later it's 40,000, right? I, it really annoys me because for me like I became pretty wealthy in my 20s a couple different times and lost it all due to speculation. And so I'm like very determined to do compound interest investing with the rest of my life, right? That's what I've dedicated the last decade to. So in addition to just, we hope they want to buy our fund, like we really want to teach people, hey, Wall Street has tried to make you feel dumb about investing so that you'll pay their high fees. It's, you know, Warren Buffett describes his system as simple. This is not, this is not algebra. This is not quantum physics. Like we can teach you what Warren Buffett taught. It's actually just a series of simple principles that need to be practiced. So we're very interested in educating people whether they buy our investment or not. And we also think that doing people that favor and helping them recognize what they're looking at instead of just the the sea of endless investment options, right? That can be so overwhelming. We actually think that that will create trust and that people will recognize how we've integrated those principles into what we're buying and that it'll naturally be attractive to them, right? So I've got the straight out education side I'm interested in. And then the other one is I would way rather pay chatbots than pay commissions to broker dealers to sell this investment for me, right? I'm fascinated with some of the things that have happened as far as the progression of chatbots where they, they actually are helpful can you talk about why that's possible, that chatbots are much less annoying than they ever used to be? Yes, I, I certainly can. With you talking about Warren Buffett there, I, would, I have not seen what Warren Buffett has said about Bitcoin, but I wonder how many four-letter words are in it. It's, He's not a fan. Fr- froth in local markets doesn't seem like it would be an adequate description. So chatbots, yes, this is really interesting because it's one of those fields about AI that tells us more about ourselves than it does about AI. I think the progress in chatbots and in, in things like GPT-2, GPT-3 has resulted in things that can produce text that, well, one of the benchmarks in the industry, something called the Turing test and the Loebner Prize. Let's set that aside because it's opening up a can of worms. We don't have to. Let's just say that they look like the output of a human. There's an article in the New Yorker recently where someone fed the opening of uh, the Kublai Khan, Coleridge's unfinished poem, to a version of GPT-3, and it finished it. And you would swear that was Coleridge's output. And it's original. You can not find the phrases it used on the internet. Of course, that's you know that's one example of more of, of pattern matching again. But there are now conversational versions that can hold dialogue of GPT-3 within certain narrow domains that are much better. And, and so the way they're they're working. Can you can you tell people what? Well, can you tell me what GPT-2 and GPT-3 are? Right, they are. 
let's see if I got this right, generative pre-trained transformer. They came out of the OpenAI organization, which makes open source artificial intelligence. They are giant neural networks. GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters in it, which is a big number. It's like twice the number of neurons in the human brain, although they're not equivalent necessarily. But then they feed it a large chunk of text from the internet, like a large chunk of the internet. And that consumes several rainforests of electricity. But the result is the it, it can complete text in the same way that when you're typing on your phone and it says, I think you want to type this next or Gmail will do the same thing. And often it's right. This can do that on much larger scale, like paragraphs. And, and there are other modes that you can put it in, like you can train it to write sort of the rote articles, like describing the uh, progress of a sports game or the performance of uh, a stock, those, those kind of things that have to be churned out day by day. And, or far more inventive things. And it's so, so the, the, the reason that this is so good in these narrow domains is that it is pulling from so many descriptions of what has been done before that it doesn't need to be completely monkey, like, like I have to have exactly this input text and then I will produce exactly that output text, like a cliche. It can generate enough material enough variation in that, enough intelligence around it to be useful in these narrow contexts. It can't do what we're doing because we're doing all kinds of stuff. But if you want to have a conversation with your bank about what happened to your account last month, then sure. Well, what's fascinating about that to me is to think, you know, for people buying our investment, it's it's a really pretty simple investment, right? So you know, it's a 506C offering, which means I can advertise it to anybody, but I can only sell it to accredited investors. I'm pretty sure we could train a chatbot to teach somebody that, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? There, yeah. it's we're not we're not investing across the stock market. We're buying commercial real estate. Like you know, what I mean? like like it is a pretty narrow thing, and the nature of selling the investment, you kind of get about the same questions for most of the investors mm -hmm. over time. You know, like it'd be fascinating to me to be able to have a chatbot be able to do at least a decent job of that at two in the morning when I don't normally take calls from investors, right? Right <laughs> on the website. Yeah. And, and possibly exactly. even like suggesting suggesting videos or blog posts on our on our website for further details, you know? Yes, this is possible. I can't tell you how much it's going to cost or how cost effective it's going to be, but it's possible. One example of me is I've been called a couple of times by the Google Assistant. And it, it announces the first time it called, I didn't realize until I hung up, wait a minute, that was a computer. Second time I was ready. And it, it said, I'm the Google automated assistant. It wanted to verify details about my Google business listing. And it was very personable. The intonation was exactly what you would expect from a person, indistinguishable from that. But it was a different experience. And it was actually better than talking to a person doing that job because it wasn't bored. It, it wasn't trying to sell me something. And it it just, I want these answers. Can you tell me, is your business still at this address? Well, okay, thanks. Goodbye. You know, that could revolutionize telemarketing. Well, con conceptually, it could also devastate tele telemarketing. Fascinating. So let's say I want to pursue something like that. What what do I start Googling? How do I find the service providers to evaluate? What what, where's my starting point of, you know, chatbot salespeople on my website? 
Uh, right. Another good question. So where by the previous definition as well. And, and, and so yes, chatbot resellers, I would start with one good place to start with the Amazon because they have a service for everything. And, and if they haven't got this one, it's only a matter of time. Now it's not to say that they're the only place and or the best one for that, but they will know. And, and, and so that's one possibility but the the new players crop up in this market so fast that unless you're that's your thing you can't be on top of it and i'm not what what about an education you know like i i'm imagining we could be you know linkedin learning is great where hey there's a video from an expert or, or master class hey there's a video from some expert to give you stuff but it's not very interactive it, you know like you know, for a lot of learning styles, that's probably better than reading a book, you know, for a lot of learners, right? But being able to have people sign up to say, yes, turn my webcam on and have the camera try to recognize when I'm confused or not getting something and have AI help me realize right. things like, I mean, you need to get people's permission for that, that you don't want to be filming folks without permission. But, but I can see as a student signing up for that of like, hey, is this, you know, I'll sign up to turn my computer on if it's going to help me learn better, faster, easier, right, you know, and have have almost like feels more like personalized instruction instead of just being firehoused with a video. Yes. But what, what about pursuing those type of things? It seems like you've got more of a background in AI for for education. Is that right? Yes. What you describe is doable. It's not been done yet, but it's probably more of a, a matter of market acceptance and someone making the first move. Uh, and what I mean by that is this combination of what we call effective computing and the uh, interaction to recognize your face, to recognize what's going on, to characterize your emotions. There's a, a big branch of AI now called emotion AI or effective computing. Several companies in that space using it for all kinds of things. One of those major factors, major applications is in hiring. So you have companies like HireVue doing automated video interviews of, of people. And, and so you can measure emotions through the face. I've, I, I've thought, and actually I speculated in my last book that the, this could be used for preventing teen suicides because suicide is unfortunately common in among teens. And the other thing about teens is they spend a lot of time looking at their phones. So we should be able to solve this problem. Um, and, and that's, there are starting to be things in that, that space. It's doable. There's the, 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 the big barrier to get over is privacy to to handle the, the the privacy concerns the HIPAA factors and and things like that before you do things like that so but if if you could magically solve the privacy concerns then what you describe is is doable right now uh, to interpret someone's uh, facial expressions as being whether they are understanding or not, which is what a good human tutor does. Yeah. What are some of the other uh, more exciting things that are be done in, being done in, in education with AI? It's being used to organize the knowledge base of the institutions. So higher education doesn't just teach, they have to do research. And the AI can look over the body of information or the body of fields that are being researched. It can spot duplicate efforts in a, a large institution that could be not easy to do otherwise. And it can spot gaps and say, well, you, you're not exploring this kind of, of research, but it would fit well with the other things that you're doing. Interesting. What are the most interesting parts of AI to you? I, it, it is 
going back to the quote about electricity, it, it's that it touches so much. And I ask myself often why. I like to tell people who say, well, what part would you like to talk about? I say, I, anything you want. I can go from computer science to theology in 30 seconds. Uh, and that's not idle. We really can talk about, start out talking about computer science and by the end of uh, the sentence be talking about theology when the context is artificial intelligence. And and so you've got pretty much everything in between. So for me, it's the, the, the problem that I'm approaching is not so much the technical one because those are pretty well handled. It's the, the people one. As we started out talking about how will people handle this a huge amount of unknown, a huge amount of hype to make sense of AI and and its effect upon people. Like what will it mean for an industry, uh, a business in, in a particular industry, if people start seeing reports that half the people in that field are being laid off because computers? And, and, and how do you deal with that? How do you work with your people so that even if their jobs aren't in, in jeopardy, how do you engage them to, to, to get them to realize that? That's what I, I find fascinating. It's all, it's all about the people. As more than one researcher has said, the, I, I do this because the more I learn about AI, the more I learn about myself. You know, it's, an, it's a fascinating subject. You know, I like I certainly wouldn't want to say we can't have any cars because it's going to put buggy manufacturers out of work, right? But the but I also look up to the business leaders that are involved in that are involved in retraining. You know, do you know this bank in Singapore, DBS? Have you heard of them? You know, fascinating as far as like, you know, one of the most forward thinking banks of, of digitizing, becoming a digital, a real player in the digital economy. But as a result of, of all the efficiencies and all this stuff, they, they need less staff to do be tellers and things that they used to do, right? And so they've got a very aggressive, like internal university for helping people learn a new skill set, which for a lot of people, it ends up being programming and computer stuff, which is hopefully a little more durable than being a bank teller, right? The years go on. Any thoughts about that? Well, there was a, a study done or a few years ago of where AI researchers looked at different fields, different types of job, and tried to predict how long it would be until that field was completely automated. And things like five years, 10 years for like point of sale and looking at accountants and things like this. What I thought was funny was that the job that had the most amount of time on it, 85 years until complete automation of AI researcher, <laughs> which, which I thought was telling because... I can just imagine the conversations, people going, well, what about us? And people say, oh, no, that's that's really hard. What we're doing here, that, that, you, you can't automate that, that you, you're going to need some kind of miracle AI to do that. And and not thinking that the same might apply to the other fields. And, and regrettably, those kind of predictions are rife with huge amounts of uncertainty. There was a, a landmark study done about this at Oxford Martin program that predicted 47% automation of jobs within 15 years. But the way they looked at it was to characterize across uh, hundreds of, of jobs, what extent was the, did the job involve repetitive mental activities or repetitive physical activities, which led them to the conclusion that point of sale activities could be automated because that's very repetitive. You know, put the stuff in the bag, ring the thing up on the cash register, hand it to the customer. But robots 
are not close to doing that kind of thing. That's only automatable if you have something like the Amazon store, which doesn't have any point of sale staff at all because it scans the customers when they go in and when they go out. Uh, and if that's the future of retail, well, there's going to be some gaps like yeah. you know, folding clothes you know, I, and such. Go ahead. Sure. Well, I think about this because I've got four kids and, you know, we had a talk on the weekend this weekend about kind of the future and preparing them for for kind of how they're going to feed their families and things like this. And for me, I have much more faith in creativity skills, entrepreneurship, you know, inventing the future rather than like something you have to memorize and pass a test for. Any thoughts? Right. Absolutely. I've how, how old are your kids? 16 to 10. And I've got 11 and seven. And, and so I'm thinking about this a great deal. I'm actively engaged in the reinvention of the high school that they will be going to. And Kai-Fu Lee has a, a good chart on this that you can find in his book about AI superpowers, where he divides up the jobs along two kinds of ac two axes, creative versus whatever the opposite of creative is and people oriented or, or involving people contact. Yeah. Involving people contact versus in involving cognitive. And, and so you get a, a quadrant, which is one of our favorite tools as business people for analyzing things. Right. And, and if you look at where different jobs fall in that quadrant, then you have an, an idea of how susceptible they are to the influence of AI and automation. And when I think back to when I was in high school, teachers then could prepare kids for the next 20 years, at least in any profession, because they were predictable enough. But not now, because five years from now, there will be jobs we can't even spell now. I have no idea what they will be. So how can you make that kind of plan when by the time some kid gets out of high school, the, the job they should be going for is one we, that doesn't exist now? So these softer skills of preparing yourself for uh, disruption, for dealing with the unknown, the, the scout motto, right? For understanding people. It, it's actually all these skills are the ones that didn't show up on any of the exams that I took when I got out of high school, like understanding personal finance, communication, public speaking, working in teams, leading teams, those kind of things are and understanding investing. They're all pretty important, right? For being an adult of, of, of any size, and yet the discussion on that in high school around my time seemed to be like, oh, by the way, you will probably need to, you'll need to know these things. You can figure them out. We, we got to turn that around. Yeah. I, I mean, I tell my kids, you know, people, people like us get labeled ADD or ADHD. Right. And I feel like that's, that's like, there's, there's kind of two kinds of people in the world as like a mass oversimplification. There's more of the hunters and more of the farmers. Right. And uh, there's a lot of genetics that, that research that's been done in the last few years to kind of recognize that, except that over 90% of the world are farmers, but by, by genetic makeup. And so naturally they think there's something wrong with the hunters because you're not good at all these, you're not good at all these farming things. Right. But, but yeah, we don't have like the counter of like creativity deficit disorder to, la mm -hmm. to label all the other folks. Right. Right. And so I just said like, you know, I've been trying to raise entrepreneurs and I've been telling them like the most important, like, I don't really care if you, what happens for your high school. I want you to go to college. It's a great place to meet a spouse. I don't care if you graduate you know, let's, let's run businesses together. I'll be your investor kind of thing. But for me, like this idea of, I don't know, the program that barely worked for my parents' generation didn't work for my generation. It seems like pretty well past extinct for such a huge percentage of my kids' generation. 
It's like, hey, you guys need to go to college so you can understand the experience of all these employees you're going to need to hire for your businesses and stuff like that. But don't don't expect them to prepare you for the world that's coming. And we really emphasize like learning how to learn and got our kids into audiobooks early. And that's kind of my my attempt. I, I agree that the the kinds of, of, of things that we need to be teaching the kids uh, right now at that level is what are you going to be doing when artificial intelligence is ubiquitous to the same extent that smartphones are now? We have to try and imagine what that is and, and skate to where that puck is going to be because the training people to deal without that, to, to, as though that's not going to be a thing, is as useful as raising them in a world that doesn't include Google. It's, to the extent that that's made a huge difference in how we find and access information, AI will do the same for thinking, for cognition. We will have access to accelerated thinking in the same way that the internet gives us access to information on an unheard of scale 40 years ago. This will make it possible to do the same for thinking. How should we raise children to be partners with to use these accelerated thinking tools? They're actually already getting it. I mean, when I talk to kids and even in middle school, artificial intelligence is something that they are as familiar with or as, as comfortable with using the terms as I would have been talking about Saturday morning cartoons. You know, it's interesting. It makes me think about Steve Jobs' analogy of the computer being a bicycle for the mind, right? <laughs> you think about, you know, you think about the potential, for instance, in my industry compared to 20 years ago, right? If if I can now have AI saying, hey, here's what content is working at bringing your ideal investors in, and you can produce that content yourself, and things like Descript can help me transcribe a video and turn it into an article without needing staff to do that, right? And and then I can buy an AI product to be my salesperson off my website, right? That's a lot less staff that I need to hire, right? Like you think about a, as a bicycle for the entrepreneur, having it be able to fill so many of those roles, right? And really what like a benefit to society it is to have people, like we get to have that problem solved and now there's people available to solve all these other things that everyone says somebody should do something about those. Some Somebody should do something about that someday, right? Mm -hmm. Now it requires a different mindset to get everybody to want to tackle problems. But to me, it's, it's kind of exciting about like how much better the world could be. Well, and we need that. There's no shortage of big problems. And, and climate change is obviously one of the, the biggest ones. And so we, we, we don't have the luxury of now hanging around like, oh, do you want to go golfing? Oh, well, no, we've, we've got work to do to keep this planet safe and habitable for our children and, and their children. So we need everything that we can give them for, for doing that. And, and those, those kind of tools are, are just part of the, the job. But this is that there's a, a model in higher education called wicked problems, where instead of sliding kids into just, you take this major, it's got these classes, 101, 102, and, and so forth. And you'll come out with a degree that has, has this on the bottom of it. They, they get them together in cohorts at the beginning of the, uh, the year 
and they say your job is to solve this wicked problem and it might be something like climate change it's but it's something that that crosses every discipline right you can look at climate change and that gets into economics physics chemistry biology astronomy you you can you can check all those boxes then they go and and take whatever course is applicable to that that problem solution that resonate with them and they keep coming back to the wicked problem setting to see how they apply it so they don't just learn things they know why they're learning them what they can make them useful for and i i want to see that happen a lot more places i think that's a terrific paradigm interesting let's take let's take a tangent for a minute i want to find out how you ended up from britain to california to vancouver island how did that happen? <laughs> oh well i was born in in britain that part was was more or less beyond my control i was born at home wanted to be near my mother and so went to cambridge a computer science then I've always been interested in astronomy and space. I've worked for observatories. And so I gravitated towards the Jet Propulsion Lab in California, a place that puts spacecraft on other planets and around the solar system, and worked there for the next 16 years in navigation and also enterprise computing. Then decided quality of life. I, I get too hot down in LA and got married. We moved up to Vancouver Island because quality of life plus, and we were talking about you know, the tools that are available to us now, plus at that moment, remote work became a, a possibility. And so since then, have been doing some of the still working for JPL as a contractor and helping people understand about artificial intelligence because and I started out doing doing coaching, but then I, when I had kids and I, I realized what I was thinking about and what I knew about artificial intelligence, that I had to be able to do what I could to balance the risk and the payoff of artificial intelligence in this world so I could I could face them with a, a clear conscience. And and so I've been doing that. That's the nutshell. Yeah, I love it. Well, listen, where are the best people, where are the best places on the internet for people to come uh, find out more about you and the podcast and the books and everything? Sure. The podcast is Artificial Intelligence and You. We're at net, or you can look for Artificial Intelligence and You on iTunes, Spotify, and the other platforms. And I've also got a book out. It's called Crisis of Control. If you Look for Peter Scott, Crisis of Control. That should turn up the right book. And that's the, those are the main places to find out what I'm doing. I've got a couple of TEDx talks. Look for my name on artificial intelligence on TED.com. You should find those. Oh, great. Well, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jess. I, I love doing this and it's been a, a pleasure. You bet. Bye, everyone.